Vineyard Church audio podcast. I'm Christmas Schroeder. Today on the podcast, we celebrate Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, which kicks off Holy Week. Uh, and we're going to ask ourselves the question what does Jesus in this story, what does this reveal about God, power, and how might our ideas about God need to be reconfigured by what we see of Christ? Really good stuff in here great way to kick off Holy Week. And I just want to remind you that this Friday night we have a Mediterranean community potluck celebration of uh, Good Friday. Uh, Bring your favorite dish, some hummus, some tabbouleh, and join us at 7 p.m. at North Shore Vineyard. It's going to be great. But for now, let's head to the talk. Thanks for listening. North Shore Vineyard. passage we're reading today is uh, from Matthew 21, verse 1 through 11. Today we're going to be reading it out of the message translation. When they neared Jerusalem, having arrived at Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples with these instructions, go over to the village across from you. You'll find a donkey tethered there, her colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, say, the master needs them, and he will send them, he will send them with you. This is the full, daughter, the full story of what was sketched earlier by the prophet. Tell Zion's daughter, look, your king's on his way, poised and ready, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a pack animal. The disciples went and did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They led the donkey and colt out, laid some of their clothes on them, and Jesus mounted. Nearly all the people in the crowd threw their garments down on the road, giving him a royal welcome. Others cut branches from the trees and threw them down as a welcome mat. Crowds went ahead and crowds followed, all of them calling out, Hosanna to David's son. Blessed is he who comes in God's name. Hosanna in the highest heaven. As he made his entrance into Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken. Unnerved people were asking, what's going on here? Who is this? And the parade crowd answered, this is the prophet Jesus, the one from Nazareth in Galilee. One of the greatest problems, I believe, for modern Americans in understanding the Bible. Can we be honest? The Bible's a confusing book sometimes. But one of the greatest problems that contributes to our misunderstanding the Bible is the gap. There is a very large gap between uh, where we are and where they were. There's a gap that is uh, a time gap. I mean, think, think of this today. How different we are here in modern America from the people who founded this country 200 years ago. I mean, that's just a little bitty slice of time. We're based, America's basically the new kids on the block right now compared to most nations uh, or many nations in the world. But if you go back 2,000 years, there's, there's, there's quite a big gulf. But probably the, the greatest gap would be culturally speaking. We live in a very different world. Uh, for instance, do you realize that 
the New Testament was written not the way most history books are written. It was written by what would have been looked upon in that time as the losers. Have you ever heard that quote, history is written by the victors? Uh, you know, usually that's, that's a pretty logical statement. Whoever wins the war ends up writing the history, and that, that's the histories that we read. But the New Testament was not written by what anybody considered in the first century to be victors. If anything, they were looked down upon as just some kind of fringe cult group. You know, these, these uh, people on the edges of society who didn't have a voice and power. They, they weren't super wealthy or famous, although there was a handful of famous or rich people in the church. But when we read the Bible, we don't read it from that vantage point, do we? I mean, think about this. We live in a country where if you are going to be elected the highest office in the land, you have to at least give lip service to Christianity. I've never heard of a president that was elected president of the United States that didn't call himself a Christian. Now, we can argue over, over whether in, that definition was true for different presidents or not, but that just kind of shows that Christianity is, is, is so important in this country that you have to pay it good attention if you want to get anywhere. I mean, the fact that we're meeting up here on a Sunday morning in a building and none of us are afraid that the government's going to come in here and run us out is, is quite a statement to our position as Christians in the world. And so that cultural gap right there is a pretty big one. So if we're reading the New Testament scriptures as people who have rights and privileges and who live in a country where you're free to be whatever religion you want and Christians aren't persecuted, we can oftentimes project that stuff onto the text. But sometimes it's not those ways. Sometimes it's just the, the small assumptions that we make. For instance, the term Jesus Christ. A lot of people assume that Jesus is his first name, Christ is his last name. And depending on the father you grew up with, H is his middle initial. <laughs> but Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is actually his vocation. Jesus was not born Christ. He became the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for uh, anointed one, the Messiah, and what does the anointed one mean? Anointed is probably not a word you use uh, around the water cooler much. But anointed, it means back in the Old Testament, when you had somebody that God had called to a particular uh, vocation, whether as a priest or a king, the prophet would meet with that person, like King David or uh, Moses' brother Aaron, who became the first high priest of Israel. They, and they would pour oil over their head and symbolically saying that this oil is, is uh, a picture of the Holy Spirit coming upon this person and setting this person apart for ministry. So Christ means the anointed one. It's the Messiah. And, and another thing that we don't really understand, we, we oftentimes as, as modern American Christians, we see that term Christ. We assume it's Jesus's last name. We see the term Messiah and we just automatically assume it's just some kind of title for Jesus, but we don't realize that even that term has great significance in the history of the people of Israel. God had promised that he was going to send somebody to set things right. 
And in the centuries leading up to the first century, there, the, the people of Israel had been conquered by one empire after another. And they kept clinging on to this hope that one day God would send a deliverer like Moses, a king like David, who would restore Israel to its rightful place that existed under David and Solomon in the glory days. And you might not know this, but historically speaking, there were many would-be messiahs. Jesus was not the first person to come on the scene and claim that he was the messiah. Uh, there was a guy um, named Judas Maccabeus, and uh, his, he was actually, his nickname was, or, or as I like to say, his wrestling name was Judah the Hammer. One night only. Uh, Judah the Hammer led a revolt, uh, you know, about 100 uh, and 60 years before Jesus came on the scene against the Seleucid Empire. The Seleucid Empire was the remnants of the Greek Empire that had been founded by Alexander the Great, and they were pretty hostile to Judaism. And so the great temple there in Jerusalem where God said that you shall never set up a graven image, some idol, because the temple was supposed to not have any idols, the 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 Greeks under the Seleucids, they, they set up their, their statues to their deities and, and profaned the holy temple. And so Judah the hammer led a revolt. And it's actually celebrated in Hanukkah. If, you, if you've ever read anything about Hanukkah, it commemorates part of the overthrowing of the Seleucids. But Judah led this revolt and, and was one of the few people that successfully battled an empire uh, over centuries there and actually set up the Maccabean dynasty, which for, for several decades, the Jewish people had self-rule for the only time in a period of being dominated uh, by one empire after the other. Now, what's interesting is that Many people looked at Judah the hammer as if he was the Messiah. He's the promised one. After all, he was a priest. And he led this revolt. And what's the first thing he does when he overthrows uh, the empire? He makes a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then what does he do? He goes to the temple and he cleanses it. Now, there was another would-be Messiah in the time of Jesus named Herod the Great. I got to go to the... Has anybody in here ever been to the Holy Land? Shall we ever do a Holy Land trip? That'd be fine. Yeah, okay. Next year. Uh, I got to go to the Holy Land a few years ago, and I was blown away by the handprint of Herod the Great on the Holy Land. Everywhere you go, there is stuff that was built 2,000 years ago that is still there today. Uh, I mean, have you ever watched that show, like what happens when humans die off? Like how quick does nature take over? Uh, I, I'm pretty sure my neighborhood in Abita Springs, like within one year, you wouldn't even know any houses were there. But Herod built stuff that is still there 2,000 years later. And Herod was a different type of messianic figure because rather than revolting against the Romans, he chose the path of compromise. He decided... He would just fit in with their thing. But he did do some messianic acts like expand the temple complex. And that's one of the things that if you go to Jerusalem today, you still, there are still massive chunks of this temple there today. And that's after the Romans besieged it and destroyed the city in 70 AD. Even the Romans couldn't destroy this thing. But every would-be Messiah has a way of dealing with the powers that are above them and the temple. 
So Herod didn't cleanse the temple, but he expanded the temple. Judas Maccabeus threw off the yoke of oppression and cleansed the temple. And in the passage that we see today, what does Jesus do? It's as if Jesus is following some kind of script. But he does it in a very different way. There's a prophecy from Zechariah that says, O daughter, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is getting ready to enter into Jerusalem after doing all kinds of ministry in Galilee and getting a reputation as a healer and a great teacher, a rabbi, a prophet. He's getting ready to make his way into Jerusalem. But before he goes into Jerusalem, he tells his disciples, wait a second, we need to do one thing because he's following a script. He says, I need a donkey. Get me a donkey. So his disciples go and find this donkey that he has waiting for him, probably at the house of somebody he's ministered to before. And they bring the donkey out. And this donkey is signifying the prophecy of Zechariah right here. So the disciples immediately begin to say, oh, this is, this is that moment. But I want to remind you of how ridiculous this would look. If I brought in a colt of a donkey today and I tried to ride it, it would look ridiculous. I mean, think if President Trump was making a trip to Covington, Louisiana, and he pulls up in a Volkswagen Beetle. We'd all be going, that doesn't make sense. That's not very presidential. And so Jesus comes into town but he doesn't come into town the way most would-be messiahs would come into town. If you wanted to make, make a good showing, you would come into town on a war horse, right? You'd have some troops. You'd have uh, people gathered around you, secret service. Jesus comes in. I can imagine it. He's coming in on this young donkey. I can imagine the legs kind of shaking. I mean, nobody even rides young donkeys. You, you may put some packs on their backs. But here is Jesus coming humbly on the back of a donkey. And even in spite of that, the people start to get excited. And they begin laying down their cloaks. They begin cutting palm branches and laying them down. And they say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What are they doing here? They're welcoming Jesus as the Messiah, their king. This is the guy that's going to set things right. And what does Jesus do immediately after this? Where does he go? He goes to the temple. And he cleanses the temple. But Jesus cleanses the temple not from outside uh, corrupting influences. He cleanses the temple from the corruption of the priestly class there in Jerusalem. He turns over the tables and he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus judges the whole temple system there. All these things he's doing are very messianic. And there's a script that Jesus is following. And everybody sees it. And on the first of the week, on Sunday, on Palm Sunday, which we celebrate today, by the way, if you haven't figured it out, on the first day of the week, everybody's excited. This is the moment where things are going to be different. We're going to make Israel great again. But 
things don't quite work out that way because Jesus is not the kind of Messiah that they were expecting. We prefer a Messiah that is going to back our own personal agendas, don't we? We like the idea of Jesus forgiving us. That's great. I need my slate wiped clean. We like that idea. We like the, the idea that Jesus wants to bless us and that we get to start all over. That's great. We love the idea that, that God is a good, good father and he loves us. We sing about it. We sang about it this morning. We love that. And there's nothing wrong with loving that. But oftentimes we expect that just because God forgives us and God loves us, that he is ready to back our agenda. And that's the wrong way for the creation to think about their creator. <laughs> Oftentimes, we think that Jesus is here to back our patriotism, our nationalism, our own agendas. We co-opt him for a political party. We co-opt him for our own means, and we try to squeeze Jesus into this thing that he can't fit into. But here's the deal. When we try to do that, guess what? We're going to end up disappointed with Jesus because he is not here to meet those expectations. Many in the crowd who welcomed Jesus on that Palm Sunday saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Come in, Jesus, be our king. By the end of the week, many of them were in that same crowd saying, Crucify him. Give us the criminal. Take this dude. Why? Because he wasn't the kind of Messiah that they expected. Instead of starting a revolution... Jesus spends his final hours like a servant, washing his disciples' feet. <laughs> Instead of trying to, to uh, overthrow the Romans, he's simply doing what he's always done. Walking in humility, showing mercy, healing, loving, restoring. To truly welcome this Jesus as the, as the Messiah means that we have to allow our conceptions of God and power to be reconfigured and conformed to Christ. It will do no good to try and squeeze Jesus into worldly conceptions of power and might. We must trust our lives to this king the way Jesus trusted his own father. We must trust that love is stronger than hate, that humility is greater than pride, that mercy is stronger than judgments, Judgment, forgiveness is more powerful than revenge, and that peacemaking is superior to continuing the myth of redemptive violence. If we cannot trust Jesus for this, we can very well find ourselves as Christians in the United States actually anti-Christ. And I'm, I'm not trying to scare anybody about the Antichrist. Because I think most of the people who are afraid of the Antichrist out there fail to see the Antichrist in here. It is possible to show up to church every week, to listen to Christian radio, and to actually be against the purposes of Jesus. Because we tried to squeeze Jesus into a box that he never intended to fit into. Jesus is much bigger than America the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, he's much bigger. He's got a much bigger agenda than any of this stuff that we get, that we like to try to squeeze him into. We can try to squeeze God into our little box, or 
we can allow Jesus to redefine what we think God is. We can allow Jesus to confront how we understand power. Because nothing looked very powerful about Jesus, did it? Can we be honest? I mean, I can understand why the disciples went back to fishing after Jesus was crucified. It's like, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but it got bad in a big way by the end of the week. But what we see in Jesus is that the things that look weak and the things that look foolish and the things that don't seem to make sense in the power structures of this world are really the things that actually overthrow the world. And we have to learn to trust this God. I can't make sense of it. Yeah, it makes more sense that if you steal from me, I'm going to steal from you. Makes more sense, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. All that stuff makes more sense. That's the way the world works. And yet, I've seen the power of when forgiveness breaks through revenge. You ever felt that in your life? Where, where somebody could be evil to you and they had good reason because you did them wrong and they released you? I've seen how breaking the cycle of revenge brings healing. I've seen what happens when you can take two people that are at war, or two countries that are at war, and actually walk through a peace instead of continuing the cycle of revenge. It doesn't make sense to us on the surface, but these are the ways of Christ. Can we allow ourselves to, when we conceive of God and when we conceive of power, and when we conceive of God's greatness, can we let those very things be defined by Jesus? See, one of the biggest things I, I think that, that shows that Jesus is God is because he doesn't act like the gods that we make up, right? We like Zeus. We like, we like gods that are on our side and against our enemies and, 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 and want to bless everything we do. I think one of the greatest evidences that Jesus is, is truly God is we would never make up a God like Jesus because <laughs> he don't make no sense to us. But his way is the path to life. And if we will learn to trust our life to him, we will learn that he even... If we look foolish, even if we look defeated, even if we suffer loss, God will bring resurrection life from our brokenness. And I could go on, but i got to save a little something for next weekend. <laughs> Why don't y'all stand up? Let's pray. Lord, your greatness is your goodness. Your strength is your humility, Lord. Your power is in your forgiveness and your healing. We are so in awe of those things, Lord. God, I pray for each one of us that Lord, where our ideas of God have been determined by the principalities and powers of this world, by man-made religion, 
by us versus them thinking. Lord, I pray that, that those ideas can come down and we could truly have our minds transformed and renewed by a beautiful picture of who you are, Lord. And Lord, that, that we wouldn't just welcome you as king and Messiah in our lives, but we would follow you. And we would follow you even into the darkness, God, even into the difficult times, knowing that we can truly trust our lives to you the way you trusted your life to the Father, Lord. And we have great confidence, Lord, that as we do, you will bring life forth. So let it be in our lives, God. Let it be. Amen.